0: This is Blood Cancer Talks. We are a podcast dedicated to hematologic malignancies where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to your podcast in. Today, we are excited to review the hottest updates in myeloid space from the American Society of Hematology 2023 meeting held in San Diego. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Anand Patel. Anand is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Chicago and a clinical investigator in myeloid space. Thank you so much for joining us again for the ASH Highlights episode, Anand.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Ashwin and Eddie. I am really looking forward to walking through some of the the highlights from ASH from just a few weeks ago.
0: So we will start with the myeloproliferative neoplasms uh, abstracts there were two abstracts which kind of caught my eye these were the first time i think after a long time we saw a two phase three abstracts presented at ash this year so the first of the abstract is transform one and the second is manifest two so let's do Let's combine both these abstracts and then talk about them, if that's okay with you, Anand.
1: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: Yeah. So the first is the TRANSFORM one. It's a first international multi-center randomized phase 3 study that investigated a combination therapy of a novel drug, Navitoclax, which is an oral inhibitor of BCL-XL and BCL-2 in combination with ruxolitinib versus ruxolitinib alone in patients with untreated myelofibrosis. So this trial is a phase three randomized trial. It accrued patients who have intermediate two or high-risk myelofibrosis, and it randomized 125 patient into the treatment arm, which is the Navitoclax plus ruxolitinib, versus 127 patients to Ruxolitinib alone. The primary endpoint of the study was SVR35 at week 24, which which study met the primary endpoint with 63.2% responded in the treatment arm compared to 31.5 in Ruxolitinib alone. And the secondary endpoints in the study, the first secondary endpoint is TSS 50 at week 24, as measured by the MPN symptom assessment score version 4, which it did not meet the endpoint In the treatment arm, it was 39.2% versus 41.7% in the ruxolitinib alone. And the adverse events, the most common adverse events was thrombocytopenia in the treatment arm which was actually quite high, in my opinion, about 90% any grade. And they also had uh, adverse events of anemia, neutropenia, and they also had some GI side effects of diarrhea. And most important to note is 33% discontinued the study treatment. And most common reason is because of the adverse events. So that is transform one and A sort of a similar approach is the next trial I'm gonna present. And then we can compare and contrast between these two trials and see which is the practice-changing abstract. So the next study is MANIFEST-2, which is once again, a phase three randomized study. It's a double-blind randomized study combination of peloprisib, which is a BET inhibitor in combination with ruxolitinib versus ruxolitinib alone for treatment-naive patients with myelofibrosis. Here, they accrued patients who are intermediate one or higher, and they randomized 214 patients to palaparacid plus ruxolitinib versus 216 patients to ruxolitinib alone. And the primary endpoint is SVR35, which is the spleen volume response of 35% at week 24, which is kind of a uh, gold standard endpoint we use in all myelofibrosis clinical trials. And this study actually met that endpoint with 65.9% have met the SVR35 week 25 at week 24, compared to 35.2 in ruxolitinib alone. And then coming to the symptom assessment score, which is the TSS50, which is a 50% reduction in symptom score using the MPNSAF version 4 at week 24, even this study, similar to TRANSFORM-1, did not meet that endpoint with 52.3% in the treatment arm compared to 46.3% in the control arm, which is ruxolitinib alone. But the authors also showed that there is a two-fold increase in patients achieving both SVR35 and TSS50 in the treatment arm compared to ruxolitinib alone, so 40.2 versus 18.5. And one, I think, important thing that caught my eye is there's a improvement in hemoglobin we see in the combination arm 9.3 versus 5.6 in the Ruxolitinib alone. I think this, and we can talk more in the discussion section, what is the significance of this particular improvement in hemoglobin. And one other thing I really appreciated in this abstract presentation is they also mentioned about reduction in bone marrow fibrosis and also improvement in the inflammatory cytokines, which they presented in the abstract and at the presentation. But we have to talk about, you know, are these validated endpoints or not? And the next is the adverse events are comparable in both arms. I didn't see any significant adverse events that pointing towards a treatment arm versus a control. So, Anand, with this, you know, two abstracts, two seminal abstracts, both phase three, and you now who accrued so many patients and are these abstracts, you know, practice changing? Can you tell us more about the, you know, the key findings of the study?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm going to even take one step back and just talk about our, our current field in myelofibrosis. So right now we have four FDA approved JAK inhibitors. You have ruxolitinib, uh, which has been around the longest over a decade at this point, and then you have fedratinib, uh, which has shown efficacy both in the frontline setting and in ruxolitinib exposed patients. You have picritinib, which was specifically kind of developed for patients with myelofibrosis that have a platelet count of under 50,000. And then you have momolotinib, which was specifically studied in the momentum study for patients with myelofibrosis and a hemoglobin of under 10. Now, the reason that's important is because. Both of these studies selected ruxolitinib as their dancing partner, so to speak. So these are, and when you speak with most uh, physicians that care for a lot of patients with MPNs, I think typically ruxolitinib is the JAK inhibitor we reach for first, as long as there are not major cytopenias that would make us think about using say pacritinib or momolotinib or, or something along those lines. With that, however, and with knowing that ruxolitinib, the major adverse effect that we watch out for is reduction in hemoglobin and reduction in platelet count. Uh, both of these phase three studies have fairly generous platelet cutoffs that needed to be met to enroll patients. So in looking at TRANSFORM, so the navitoclax trial, platelets over 150,000 were required. And of that, 75% of enrolled patients had a platelet count of over 200. And for Palabrasib, I believe the, the platelet count needed to be over hundred thousand. And I don't think the b- breakdown was, it was presented, or I may have missed it in terms of how many patients were above one hundred fifty or 200,000, but in any case, you know, so patients need to have a well-preserved platelet count. So for patients with a well-preserved platelet count, both of these combination approaches have been shown to be effective and better than Rux monotherapy at reducing spleen size. So spleen size and total symptom score is really where our endpoints at a phase three setting for myelofibrosis have been kind of been hitched. And a lot of that has come from, again, studies that have helped to establish the roles of various JAK inhibitors. As a myelofibrosis community, we continue to ask ourselves, are there better endpoints that we need to be investigating? Because if you look at the enrollment, these both studies had intermediate or higher risk myelofibrosis. And when you include intermediate and high-risk myelofibrosis, median overall survival is still measured on the order of years. So it can be difficult to get, for example, a survival endpoint. Even with ruxolitinib, just in the last handful of years, do we have long-term follow-up data that suggests that ruxolitinib may confer a survival benefit? That being said, we don't know if spleen reduction is a correlate for long-term overall survival. The other thing I'd like to mention is Neither of these approaches are curative approaches for myelofibrosis. We only have one curative modality for myelofibrosis, which is allogeneic stem cell transplant. So all of that to say, both studies showed that using a doublet upfront versus ruxolitinib monotherapy is more effective at shrinking down spleen size. However, when you look at total symptom score, you're probably seeing some of the trade-off that comes with using two drugs instead of one. Many of the symptoms that are assessed in patients with MPN are quite global symptoms, things like fatigue. So, you know, it, they may be improved from an MPN perspective, so to speak. But two drugs may then kind of add back that fatigue to the same level. So, I think that's something that really stood out to me, and I think it it asks the question that if we are treating patients, particularly those who are transplant ineligible, with a doublet upfront. Are we saying that they're going to be on a doublet indefinitely, which I think is a fairly significant thing to commit someone to when this is not considered a curative approach and when the endpoints that we have are reduction in spleen size and total symptom score improvement. I think for patients with very large spleens, particularly those with a spleen size that may preclude them from going to transplant, using a doublet up front makes a lot of sense. The other thing that's very intriguing is both navitoclax and palabrasib have been studied as add-ons to ruxolitinib. And that data has been quite compelling and it's been presented at previous ashes. So I think in my mind, I still probably need more information to definitively figure out which patients I would be aiming for a doublet upfront versus employing that add-on strategy if these drugs were available to me outside of a trial setting.
0: So... Just taking the, talking about more about the patient population, one thing I noticed is in Transform 1, which is an autoclax combination, they included Intermediate 2 and higher compared to Manifest 2, which is Intermediate 1 or higher. Do you think that different patient population also kind of favored the Manifest 2 to show a better response rate compared to Transform 1?
1: I, you know, perhaps I would say, and I, I don't think probably in a meaningful way, you know, one of the things that's been very compelling with Nevitaclax is in general, the data that's been presented over the last several years. And in the phase two study that was published in JCO by Pemaraju et al., they've done some pretty nice work looking at high molecular risk mutations and changes in VAF. And at least from that data, it does seem that Nevitaclax has some type of significant anticlonal effect but again does that translate into meaningful clinical endpoints meaning does that mean that patients are less likely to progress if they're on the doublet of navitoclax the other thing regarding navitoclax that i think particularly came to mind for me is we know that thrombocytopenia is an on target effect of the drug should we be thinking about pacritinib plus navitoclax as opposed to rux plus nab? and you know i'm sure again these studies come in waves so i'm sure we'll get to see these very effective combination therapies, swap in other JAK inhibitors that may allow for full dosing or more appropriate dosing of the second drug. So for noviticlax, for example, as you alluded to us, when high rates of treatment discontinuation, and even when patients were enrolled, uh, the dose of noviticlax they started on, I believe was stratified by whether or not their platelet count was over 200,000 or under 200,000. So that tells you right there that even for patients going on study they may not be at what we consider the full dose of the drug.
0: So one other point, I think this is something I noticed in the patients I treat here with my, with nab, is to objectively measure the TSS50, because I think it is so subjective. If the patient is filling out the form and there's like 12, 10 different symptoms, and they rate from 1 to 10. And if you're not supervising the patient, I think it's easy for the patient to make a mistake because one of the symptom score is joint pains or bone pains, it says. And a lot of patients mistake it as joint pains. And they rate it as like 7 or 8. But in fact, they are referring to bone pains. And a lot of the times, I actually had to correct the patient saying that, This is not the joint pains you're talking about. These are the bone pains. These are different. So I I always struggle whenever I see TSS 50 as an endpoint in myelofibrosis study. Is this a real endpoint? Like, should we looking at beyond TSS 50? Yes, spleen volume is important because that makes the patient feel better. And that is something we can objectively measure but TSS 50 is something I always struggle with to look at as an endpoint in myelofibrosis studies. I'm curious to know your take on that.
1: Yeah. And I think, Xuan, I'm much like you, where when patients are not being treated in the context of a clinical trial, being very honest, I even struggle with having them regularly fill out a symptom assessment form. It's a very global assessment of are you feeling better or not on the drugs. So I think in the context of studies, you know, the TSS. Uh, symptom score is probably valid and is probably accurate. I think the hard part is outside of the trial setting, it, it sometimes can be very difficult to systematically measure the symptom score each time we see a patient. And I think that inherently somewhat hampers the ability to utilize that as a robust means of capturing quality of life or patient reported outcomes or benefit from the utilization of these drugs and myelofibrosis. One other
0: thing about you know, Manifest 2 is they also presented about this improvement in fibrosis, which we have not seen in many of the clinical trials, as well as they showed that improvement in the inflammatory cytokines, they presented a lot of cytokines, and I know that they are not validated, but do you think that really matters in in terms of drug approval for this combination?
1: Yeah. Good question. So my, I I don't think fibrosis does. So Steve O from Wash U presented an oral at Ash, I believe last year, 2022, that commented on fibrosis improvement and whether it had any correlation with improvement in hemoglobin or other blood counts. And the short answer was it did not. And that's because I think fibrosis is a patchy uh, uh, manifestation, you know, uh, and their subjectivity uh, in terms of who's reading a marrow and what grade they're calling the fibrosis. I think unless we have a objective way to measure fibrosis and unless we can show a direct correlation between improvement in fibrosis and restoration of hematopoiesis as evidenced by blood counts, I think it's very difficult to use fibrosis as a meaningful endpoint. And for the inflammatory cytokine profiles, I mean, I think that those would be very much kind of in the early phase of, of biomarker development, where in the sense of it's, I think they're now being pretty routinely included in myelofibrosis studies, which I think is very appropriate. I don't think we've had kind of that large effort to validate their use as a, a surrogate or some sort of biomarker that can give us a signal into, will this actually halt disease progression in some sort of meaningful way or something along those lines?
0: Did you want to ask us a question about the transplant?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think it's a very interesting discussion. Obviously, the discussion about endpoints resonates very strongly with me, you know, because as you say, and if someone specifically got a big spleen and these you know, collaborative seems useful, but absent that it's hard to, seems hard to justify. But I wanted to clarify if this is, if these are mostly transplant eligible patients and whether you look, whether they looked at the proportion that that then make it to transplant.
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Eddie. And at least off the top of my head. And, and when I was reviewing kind of the, the data again, I, I don't remember that being presented Ashwin. I, I don't know if you yeah. may have come across that data for percentage of patients that went on to allogeneic stem they cell transplant.
0: Not, yeah, they did and not I, actually show the the data in the presentation as
1: well. Yeah. And and I would say that is kind of the key, you know, when you think about that translation from abstract to manuscript, that is one of those linchpins of of uh, being able to put the data in context. If we don't know how many patients are going to allo and in in the two arms, I think then it's a somewhat imprecise view of who best to to utilize this therapy for. I will say, you know, we see, and this sort of language oftentimes is included in both myelofibrosis studies and even MDS studies where patients who are not eligible for transplant at time of enrollment or, or something along those lines, Or, you know, not immediately eligible with the thought that, you know, transplant eligible patients may be enrolled. It's just, they're not ready to go to a transplant right away. And that may be because their spleen is too large for them to be considered a viable candidate for a transplant or something like that.
0: Yeah. I think one other point I want to highlight is like, both the studies have limited follow-up period. I think maybe with a longer follow-up period, we will see the transplant data as well as the overall survival readout potentially which might be very important for the patients and for the drug approval as well. Now let's switch gears and talk about acute myeloid leukemia. I wanted to highlight two important abstracts that were presented at ASH. Um, the first is the Venetoclax plus decitabine randomized study comparing with Venetoclax Dicitabine versus seven plus three which is the standard intensive chemotherapy. So this trial is a phase 2b trial comparing the efficacy and safety of venetoclax combined with decitabine versus conventional chemotherapy as an induction therapy for young adults with newly diagnosed AML. This is an interim analysis. Just as a context, right now, we use venetoclax plus decitabine combination for older patients who are uh, above 75 or patients who are ineligible to receive uh, intensive chemotherapy for various other reasons such as comorbidities or poor performance status we use the when um, combination based on the vla study but here they asked a very interesting question that is in younger patients who are fit to get intensive therapy is when decided to be in combination, equivalent to seven plus three, which is the standard intensive chemotherapy, which um, we've been utilizing for the past almost 50 years. And right now, I think this is, at least according to me, this is one of the first study which randomized the patients, including both favorable, intermediate, as well as adverse risk patients into two treatments, Vendicitabine versus seven plus three. So they accrued patients between 18 and 59 years. So these are all younger patients and uh, eligible patients were randomized in a one is to one ratio to Vendicitabine uh, versus idarubicin plus plus uh, and That's the intensive regimen they chose. So one sixteen patients were randomized. Sixty patients went into the van arm, and fifty six uh, patients went into the seven plus three treatment arm. The CRC rate, which is the complete response rate, was eighty five point five percent in the van decitabine arm, which is comparable to um, seven plus three, which is seventy eight point seven percent, and. MRD rate, which is they defined using the multicolor flow cytometry, was slightly higher in the 20 arm, which is 67.3, versus 53.2 in the 7 plus 3 arm. And they also showed that at a median follow up of 7.8 months, the event-free survival and overall survival were not reached in both groups. So I think, and this is a very interesting study, which we all are thinking about is when decided to be an equivalent to sound test in younger patients. I think this is one of the first study, and we are going to see more and more of these studies coming out in U.S. as well. This is studied from, I think, China, I believe. What do you think about this study?
1: I love this study. I think the question we have to ask ourselves as an AML community is who is the most likely to benefit from intensive induction chemotherapy? And we need to look at it in younger patients and older patients. So, you know, the authors, I believe there was a single arm phase two study that was published in Blood, where they looked at the use of HMA plus VEN in patients 18 to 59 that showed high CR rates and may have served as the impetus for then doing a randomized phase two study. And really, you know, At this point, what what we really need is to identify not necessarily that better long-term survival in my mind versus intensive chemotherapy, but equivalent long-term survival with less toxicity. And the infectious complications were lower in the DEC plus VEN arm compared to the intensive chemotherapy arm. Follow up on this is very premature, as you mentioned, Ashwin, you know, median overall survival, median EFS, none of that has been reached in in either arm and they're still enrolling because I believe ultimately they want about 90 patients in each arm. So this was a, an interim analysis of an ongoing study. They did present some data where they looked at the adverse risk, intermediate risk and favorable risk outcomes. And it does seem that perhaps in favorable risk you do get higher CR rates with uh, intensive chemotherapy. And then if you look even further, kind of, they do look at things like uh, core binding factor and NPM1. And core binding factor, again, there seem to be higher CR rates with intensive chemotherapy. Um, NPM1 mutated AML, uh, which is favorable risk, assuming there aren't other high-risk abnormalities with it. Uh, it did seem like the CR rates were higher in the deck plus VEN arm. Um, ultimately, I think... One of the things that that is interesting about this approach is we're finding out more and more that the route to remission doesn't seem to matter as long as you can get to remission. And then the second question ends up being is how do you consolidate that remission for someone who's young? For example, in patients with favorable risk disease, is using an induction regimen of intensive chemotherapy followed by cytarabine, you know, is it better than using HMA plus Venetoclax is your induction regimen, followed by consolidation with Citerabine. And in the intermediate and high risk patients, we're, we're ultimately trying to get them to an allogeneic transplant. So, again, I think the route to remission doesn't matter as long as a remission is achieved and, and depth of remission is, is achieved. I
0: wanted to clarify one thing. This trial was a superiority trial, right? Like, did they design it as, like, with the hypothesis that Venn plus DAC would be superior, plus Decitabine would be superior to? seven plus three, or because with such a small sample sizes, I don't think it would be like a non-inferiority or an equivalence trial, correct? So,
1: so it, it was a non-inferiority study. Yeah. With, uh, but it's with, probably
2: powered for the CR rate rather than for the PFS or the OS, which okay. might, might help yeah. with the stamp, sample size, Raj. Okay.
1: Yeah, so yeah, that the primary endpoint was this composite CR rate. Uh, so CR and CR with uh, incomplete count recovery, as Ashwin mentioned. Yes. With With a non-inferiority design and ultimately Plans to enroll about 90 patients on each arm, so uh, 180 patients in total.
2: I have a bunch of uh, follow up questions, some of which are reasonable and some of which are naive. So apologies for the naive ones in advance. Amounts. So, first question is Vendocitamine versus Azer and, and why they chose that and whether you'd do the same thing for your hypothetical phase three that you're pitching. The second is it sounds like you, your phase three is going to be part, is a non inferiority trial as well, which to me sounds totally reasonable. And then the third, is around kind of, in my mind, I'm hearing a kind of similar thing to what we have in CLL and mantle cell where the favorable risk do better with the chemo and some are cured by the chemo. And the more kind of adverse genetics you have, like TP53 mutated, we steer clear of the chemo and, and novel agents kind of. And so I wonder if, you know, it, it, that might be where things are heading. And I'm sort of, the point I want to push on there is the kind of cure question. And, do, you know, are people cured with the the, the deck Vendec- regimen, that sort of question around different risk groups and what you're aiming for and how cure fits in, which obviously is complicated by the allo point that you highlighted before.
1: Yeah. And I'm going to try to simplify a a very complex question that you asked, Eddie. So I think kind of keeping things very simple in my mind, I think of favorable risk AML as disease that historically has been cured with intensive chemotherapy alone, followed by consolidation. I think one of the things that is very intriguing to me is favorable risk AML, a curable disease subtype, if you receive, say, an HMA plus venetoclax induction followed by consolidation. And we don't have a ton of data in, in that space. There was actually a study looking at core binding factor AML where they used that approach. And, and it did seem to cure most of those patients because as of right now, you know, most of our data with HMA plus venetoclax is the use of that therapy as an indefinite therapy. So I agree, you know, you have to think about, well, if someone's in a CR and if they're young and healthy, and if they have favorable risk disease, the goal is to cure them. not to. It's certainly not to put them on therapy indefinitely. So I do think as we get more follow-up from this phase two study, and it may not be definitive follow-up, but trying to get that answer of, you know, are the favorable risk patients being cured at, at rates that we would think of as being historically reasonable using an intensive chemotherapy approach. In my mind, I think of dicitabine and azacitidine as like Coke and Pepsi, that's how I describe it to my patients. People have their own preference, but at the end of the day, they more or less taste the same. And maybe I'll get canceled for saying that, because I know some people have very strong-, strong preferences. Pepsi opinion with...
2: might be more controversial than your azacitidine-dicidobine Yeah, opinion. yeah.
1: <laughs> but I, I don't necessarily nitpick in terms of the use of dicidobine versus azacitidine as the partner to pair with, with venetoclax. And then in terms of the intermediate and high risk, what we're finding in terms of the very, very high-risk patients is, it sounds very nihilistic, but it doesn't matter what we do, unfortunately. So, so using the very extreme example of TP53 mutated AML, there are now you know studies to show that we know that intensive chemotherapy is not very effective for these patients. And even when you look at lesser intensity approaches, HMA Venn offers higher CR rates than HMA alone in TP53 mutated AML. But the overall survival is virtually the same and may actually be slightly worse in, in those with HMA venetoclax. And, and there's been work done in terms of subgroup analyses of prospective studies. And then there's been real world analyses that have kind of further supported that. So in those very high risk patients, I think we we unfortunately have not had the same sort of breakthroughs that have been seen, for example, in CLL, where a novel approach has completely changed our paradigm. It's more like the least toxic approach may be the right approach because Unfortunately, our current therapies are falling so short in terms of offering durable responses.
0: We we also had sort of a very similar idea here. We wanted to open with CTEP. We actually opened a trial with CTAP, but unfortunately, because of the limited accrual, we had to close the study. But the study is basically oral decitabine plus toclax versus 7 plus 3 in adverse risk AML law. We were we wanted to include both good risk as well as intermediate risk, but in our NCI was so adamant not to include the good and intermediate risk because they do so well with the definitive treatment of intensive chemotherapy. So they wanted us to show a clear benefit in adverse risk first, before we expand it to the good and intermediate risk. But unfortunately, you know, identifying this adverse risk patients, you know, before they can get straight started on treatment is always a difficult, challenging situation. So that's why, unfortunately, we had to close the study.
1: And I think that the hard part there is equipoise, right? So the equipoise to give a patient intensive induction chemotherapy with adverse risk disease versus choosing an HMA plus venetoclax approach right off the bat particularly if they're over the age of of 60, you know, then it becomes hard. And I think many physicians may not have equipoise about that question. Many physicians may say that, you know, these adverse risk scores, or sorry, these risk scores, particularly ELN risk score has been developed by large cohorts of patients treated with intensive chemotherapy. So we know that adverse risk means the patients don't tend to do very well with intensive chemotherapy, you know? So I think that also makes it hard, but I agree to kind of definitively move the needle. You need to have prospective data that can help to inform that because intensive chemotherapy has been around for five decades, as you mentioned, Ashwin, it's it's been around a long time and people, you know, there's that curative potential that there's the potential to cure someone perhaps without even an allogeneic transplant, very much on the favorable risk, but, you know, even in the intermediate and, and high risk, you know, in an ideal world, those patients are going to transplant at time of remission. But every once in a while, for one reason or another, you know, those patients don't go to an transplant, and they still seem to be cured with intensive chemotherapy, followed by consolidation.
0: I think that's a nice segue to talk about the next study, which is the Philo study. Um, um, it's a study in AML patients who stopped venetoclax and or azacitidine for other reasons than progression, have a prolonged treatment-free remission and overall survival. So as a background, we know that you know, stopping AZA plus VAN for AML patients, particularly those who have achieved remission, have a significant, You know, a lot of people are interested in this, instead of giving indefinite treatment, can we stop for any of the patients who have achieved remission? I think this is the question the authors in this abstract looked into. And the study's main objective is to study the outcomes of AML patients who discontinued venetoclax and or while in remission. Uh, The focus is on understanding the long-term outcomes of such strategy, including treatment-free remission and overall survival. To study the outcome, they accrued 62 patients with a median age of 75, so ranging from 26 to 89. And the median number of menetoclax plus in cycles were 4, ranges from 1 to 17. And they noticed a treatment-free remission of more than 15 months in the patients they were able to stop. And the median overall survival is 44 months in this group. And especially, they also showed the patients who achieved MRD negative by next generation sequencing. These are the patients with 25 patients who achieved MRD negative and their overall survival has not been reached yet. So they th- this is a very provocative study, I think, which is something we are all you now wanted to know an answer on because all the patients we continue treatment indefinitely but there could be a select patient population where we can stop the asa van and it, this particular abstract that concludes that you now we can potentially stop asa van on few selective patients but you know they obviously concluded saying that it needs to be done in a prospective clinical trial so with that you know I'm curious to know your thoughts on the study do you think you know you would select a few patients in your practice who you would stop ASA based on the MRD negativity status?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, I, I think that the most intriguing part of that oral abstract was that the, the authors said that they are designing a prospective study to evaluate this question. So really being able to translate this provocative retrospective study into something prospective. My current practice, I, I do not stop AZA-Ven for patients who are in a remission, barring some sort of significant toxicity so whether it's very prolonged count recoveries you know to where counts aren't recovering even up to 12 or 14 weeks after cycles and even with very attenuated dosing or very significant infectious complications that have arisen so those have kind of been the and even then it's i can't think of more than maybe a couple of patients where that's been the case and and to be seen how long those remissions may last but I think what makes this very difficult is AML is a very molecularly heterogeneous disease and we don't have heavy chain rearrangements the same way we do in lymphoid malignancies that allow us to use kind of broad MRD testing through NGS with you know, a power of 10 to the negative six. So then we get these subsets, like for example, NPM1 mutated patients. So we have this data that was presented and then there was a paper in blood by Othman et al earlier this year that showed that for patients that achieve mrd negativity when it comes to npm1 status i think their 2 year overall survival after stopping treatment was something upwards of 80% you know and i think that's the hard part is you know we mrd by flow in aml has not seemed to kind of be nearly as as robust as it is in all for example and obviously there's lots of work being done to prospectively validate specific MRD markers. For example, you know, the multiple high impact papers that have been published by Dr. Hurrigan et al. From the NIH. But until we have those in practice, I, I think it's very difficult to identify which patients are the most appropriate to stop therapy for, you know, I think the CML community was able to do this over the last decade because of BCR-ABLE PCR testing, you know, they have a very robust and ubiquitously used test. And we know that if someone's negative, that's great. And if they become positive, they probably need to restart their therapy. We don't have a one-size-fits-all sort of test in AML. And I think that's why I think even prospective studies you may have to define your molecular subsets ahead of time that you're enrolling prospectively. Or you, you know, if, if it's a very heterogeneous population you're enrolling, I think you you have to be aware of what we think of as being MRD negative, say by flow, there there may be, you know, some residual disease that that may be able to, to pop back up. I think the other part is prospective studies, we would get more data about retreatment. So for those that are on a treatment-free remission, are we able to retreat them with HMA venetoclax? And I believe that that this study, there, there were a handful of patients that got retreated, and I believe the response rates were not that great. I think it was like 20% response rate. So, Correct. so yeah.
0: So that always brings a challenge. You know, if you stop the treatment and the patient relapse, they are not probably sensitive to venase again, but that brings a huge challenge because especially if the patient is you know, refracted to venase, we have limited treatment options after that.
1: Yes. And, and I think that's a great point is that you do have to think about if someone's disease returns and you can't go back to that first therapy, what do you reach for next? And right now for patients who are treated with azacitidine venetoclax, particularly in the absence of a targetable mutation like IDH1, IDH2, or FLT3, there is no standard of care about what to reach for next.
0: Unlike in CML, they're they are only sensitive. Once you restart the TKI, like almost 80 to 90% of the patients are sensitive to TKIs, even after stopping. And once the disease relapse, we started, they're sensitive again.
1: Yeah, exactly. But
0: in AML, it's not.
1: Exactly. In CML, you can return to your TKI. In ALL, we have very effective antibody-based therapies that can be used in the second line setting and beyond. We have CAR T-cell therapies. We we don't have those in in AML that can kind of successfully achieve a second remission in someone who maybe has been on a treatment-free period of some time.
0: I think that's a nice segue to talk about the next abstract, which is a late-breaking abstract presented at ASH, which is a reviminate monotherapy in patients with relapsed refractory came due to a rearranged acute leukemia. This is the top-line efficacy and safety results. As a background, we know that came due to a rearranged acute leukemia has a poor prognosis. The median survival is probably less than you know, a few months, like four to five months, and revimineb, a small molecule inhibitor of menin-KMT2A interaction, which demonstrated some efficacy and safety in a phase one study, which is already published. But here they report the top line efficacy and safety results of especially the KMT2A rearranged acute leukemia in a phase two setting. So they have a larger patient population right now They accrued 94 patients with km 2 rearranged acute leukemia. Out of them, 78 were AML, and 16 patients had ALL or mixed phenotype acute leukemia. The median age of the patient population in the study is 37, and we all know that km 2 rearranged is usually present at a younger patient population compared to other rearrangements and the study population included in the in this is heavily pretreated the median lines were two ranges from 1 to 11 with 3.6% of the patients received more than three prior lines and talking about the safety i think the most common treatment related adverse events were nausea and the other treatment related adverse events was differentiation syndrome which is reported in 26.6% of the patient population. And they also reported a QT prolongation in 23.4%. And coming to the grade three treatmentally adverse events, I think they observed about 15, 16, 16% with differentiation syndrome and 138 had a neutropenia. And about 6% of the patient population discontinued treatment because of the treatment-related adverse events, but none of them discontinued because of the differentiation syndrome or QT prolongation. And then talking about the efficacy, out of the 94, only 57 patients were available for efficacy. And after a median follow-up of, you know, six months, 22.8, that is 13 patients, have achieved SCR or CRH. So this is a very historically tough to treat patient population and where a single agent has shown some efficacy. What do you think about this data?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this serves to highlight the efficacy of of Rebuminib as a single agent. I think what we know is in the absence of a consolidated therapy after Rebuminib, patients do not have durable survival. So really this, the thought is, you know, is this a drug that can help to achieve a remission that can then go to an allogeneic transplant? I believe a handful of patients, I don't remember the exact number, received review in a post transplant as a maintenance therapy as well, which is certainly an approach that should be utilized. And with this data, we also know that, you know, so there's, there was the late breaking abstract, which was the top line efficacy data. There was more early phase data that was published in Nature, and it really did some elegant work looking at patterns of resistance. And you know, we know that with the use of Revuminib as a men inhibitor, mutations in men1 can pop up. So it does seem like, you know, you keep someone on this therapy long enough, resistance does become an issue through the path of acquisition of, of other mutations. So with that in mind, I think for assuming that this is a, a drug that would be in our relapsed refractory arsenal, I think the goal would really be to try and get someone to a transplant. On the other hand, there are several studies that are looking at the use of Rebuminib in the frontline setting. So combined with HMA venetoclax, et cetera. And I think the goal there is really to achieve a, a deep remission in one such that for appropriate patients, they could potentially go on to an transplant. That's a good point.
0: We have like so many inhibitors right now. Do you think... These all these agents are kind of similar in their efficacy and safety, or is there a differences between some of these many innovators?
1: Yeah, great question. I you know, the two I'm most familiar with, and there' are several at this point, but the two I'm most familiar with is Revuminib and, and Ziftominib. Those are the two that are the furthest along in, in their clinical development. And at least from the early data that's been presented from both, it, it seemed like Ziftominib may have better efficacy in NPM1-mutated acute leukemia versus RevUminib. But again, all of the caveats that come with cross-trial comparisons apply, and we have not yet received kind of top-line efficacy uh, in the NPM1 cohort for RevUminib, yet that cohort is still accruing patients. But I think the questions that will end up arising is, are these MEN inhibitors that are in quote-unquote different generations? Meaning, for example, are these ones that don't lose their efficacy when, for example, a Men1 mutation pops up or other mutations pop up? I think the other really nice thing about the work that was published in Nature by, by the investigators and the lab based uh, scientists they work with is it does set a benchmark for what sort of stuff should we be looking at as correlative studies. So then you can kind of say, oh, yeah, our product may be a somewhat different one because even though MEN1 mutations arise, patients aren't losing their effect. Or actually, we are, you know, we're encountering the same issues with resistance that have been seen with the first compound that was published on, et cetera.
0: And we also saw some you know, preliminary results of a, a kind of innovative strategy, but I don't know how much the patients will be able to tolerate where they're combining Revimunab with oral decitabine with venetoclax and a phase one study. They, I think they they only have put very few patients, I think maybe six or seven in the study they presented called SAVE study.
1: Yeah, I think that the point I'll make doesn't just apply to that, but I think all triplet studies where I don't know if the, if our path forward in AML is indefinite triplet therapy. I think we need to think about how to use triplets to achieve deeper missions and then move to some sort of maintenance therapy, whether it's the targeted agent, whether it's being able to drop HMA, whether it's being able to drop venetoclax, et cetera, but, but Indefinite triplets in AML, they, in general, they are very myelosuppressive. And, you know, we've now seen HMA ben plus IDH inhibitor, HMA ben plus FLT3 inhibitor, now HMA ben plus menin inhibitor. And, and if you look at the longer term results that get presented in subsequent years, you do find that myelosuppression is a very real issue that gets uh, exacerbated with each subsequent cycle. And then you're having to dose reduce or to cut down. And, and I think that, I think, as a field is something that that we need to take on as a mandate is if frontline lower intensity approach is shifting towards the utilization of triplets, how long does that triplet therapy need to last for before we can deescalate therapy?
0: So next thing to talk about is the abstracts in MDS. I think in the interest of time, I'm going to talk about the, the venetoclax plus HME and high-risk MDS. So this is a, a phase 1b study presented at ASH, where they studied the safety, efficacy, and then they also reported patient-reported outcomes of venetoclax in combination with azocytin for the treatment of patients with higher-risk MDS, phase 1B study. So they accrued a total of 107 patients into the clinical trial where they gave the patients Venetoclax, 400 milligrams daily on days one to fourteen, in combination with azacitidine every 28 days. So the primary endpoint of this study was CR rate and per IWG 2006 criteria. And based on the primary results, they presented more than 80% of the patients who received ASAR responded. And the median number of cycles they received is four. And the median time to CR is 2.8 months, which is much, much shorter than what we see with single agent either cited in a similar patient population. And the median duration of CR was 16.6 months. And median overall survival is 26 months in this patient population. I think this is a very good study, which... At least in my mind, we do it all the time, especially for those patients who we are thinking of taking them to transplant. I know that it's venetoclax is not FDA approved for higher risk MDS, but we kind of individually do it, especially to debulk the disease to take them to transplant. So what do you think about this abstract, Anand? Do you think that kind of validates our treatment paradigm? I don't know if you also use venetoclax plus HMA for your higher risk MDS patients?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question, Ashwin. And I'd say for, you know, to, to talk a little bit about the the study itself. So, you know, these results are what informed the ongoing phase three Verona trial, which is looking at AZA plus or minus venetoclax in this patient population. So we'll have a definitive phase three result in, in the yeah. near future. In terms of this specific study, uh, I think it's important to say that the rate of true CR, I think was around 35%. And then there were about 40% that were marrow CRs, meaning less than 5% blasts, but not uh, recovery of blood counts. And it's very unclear in MDS what a marrow CR correlates to, whether it actually has a meaningful survival benefit, particularly in those that do not go on to receive an allogeneic transplant. So, so to your point, Ashwin, you know, we certainly particularly for patients with greater than or equal to 10% blasts, we, you know, we know that. Disease is in many respects an evolution to AML, even though it hasn't kind of crossed that arbitrary 20% myeloid blast threshold that we've set. So for those patients, we certainly think very strongly about utilizing azacitidine plus venetoclax if we're able to, with the goal of getting to transplant. Where we hesitate is patients who are transplant ineligible and patients who are high risk, not because of an increased blast percentage, but because of high risk cytogenetics otherwise. And, and that's not very often, but it does occasionally happen where you have higher risk MDS. That's purely higher risk based on cytopenias and cytogenetic abnormalities and not because of the increased blast percentage. So I think I think to be able to actually use venetoclax in, in those populations that I mentioned, we really do need a phase three study. And, and I think the thing that clouds things even more is because so much venetoclax is used in MDS, we actually have lots of real-world data that's already been published. And all of that seems to suggest that the addition of venetoclax does not improve survival compared to ASA alone. And again, we have a phase three study, so we'll have kind of a, maybe a cleaner yes or no answer, but I think it just serves to highlight that MDS is not the same disease as AML. There, there are very uh, specific kind of differences in the sense of, patients are much more prone to cytopenias. And you can see that because 14 days of venetoclax is what's the recommended phase two dose in MDS. Whereas in AML, we're typically using 21 to 28 days in the first cycle of therapy. Um, And it's it's much harder to achieve a a true CR, so to speak, in MDS than AML, at least by the, the response criteria that we utilize.
0: I'm curious for the phase three study that's ongoing. It's is it when aza versus single agent azacitidine in high risk MDS?
1: That is correct. Yeah. So so there were there are three phase three studies that were kind of ongoing at the same time, which looked at azacitidine as the control arm, and then the three studies it was AZA plus magrolimab, which has now been terminated due to futility, azacitidine plus sabatilimab, which is a Tim three targeting antibody. The accrual is ongoing. There was a randomized phase two study that did not show benefit to the addition of Map to ASA. And then there's azacitidine plus venetoclax, which is also ongoing. Uh, and I think this will be the first randomized data we we have in that space in terms of the ASA plus or minus venetoclax question for high-risk MDS.
0: That's all I have on my end. Thank you so much, Anand, for that very interesting and thought provoking discussion.
1: Thanks so much, Ashwin, and, and thanks to to Raj and Eddie for, for having me. Uh truly, this is uh this is something uh that's so fun to do, to be able to, to, to review and, and think about the data critically and and really try to parse through it and recognize what data we still need that wasn't there in abstract form and that we hope makes itself available in manuscript form if and when the time comes.